your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. everyone. Just a quick note before we dive into this episode with Jeremy Schumacher. Content warning that we do talk throughout this episode about diet, relationship with diet culture, um, and what that looks like in a wellness setting. And so if that is a sensitive topic for you, uh, just please note that that's in here. Uh, There is mention of calorie counting, intermittent fasting, and weight tracking. Um, So please take care. All right, my guest today is Jeremy Schumacher. Jeremy is a licensed marriage and family therapist and owner of Wellness with Jer. Jeremy is also the host of the Your Therapist Needs Therapy podcast. Um, Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to return the favor of showing up on a podcast. Yes, yes. So Jeremy's podcast was the first one that I had the pleasure of being on and was the experience that made me think that I could I could do this um, from the the other side. Um, so Jeremy gets a lot of credit for this even existing. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's weird because I've had several guests of mine go on to either start or relaunch their own podcasts. And then I've been like the last guest on several podcasts. So I'm like, a weird like blessing and a curse at the same time for podcasts. (laughs) Well, I have lots more guests planned after this, so (laughs) hopefully the curse (laughs) will not persist. Um, But I know that I always start with a question about wellness. Before I get there, I want to ask, like, what do you make of that, that your podcast seems to be this like launching place for other people? Any thoughts? Uh, So I am neurodivergent. I have ADHD. And I think... um, I make it look not hard in the sense that it it isn't, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not like a super organized or preps person. Uh, my ADHD is such that I've kind of learned to just show up and stuff goes okay, which isn't true, but that's kind of how my brain pretends. Uh, so Sometimes I think I'm very, it is. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm very non-threatening. I think kind of the idea of the podcast just have like a conversation uh, was appealing to people. And so, I don't know, I've had people say I ask good questions and stuff, which like I've done therapy for over a decade. So I hope that I'm okay at asking questions. And then the rest is just like, you know, once you experience it, you're like, oh, that probably isn't that hard. Yeah, a hundred percent. That definitely resonates with my experience of being on your podcast, which I will, um, I'll obviously link Jeremy's podcast in the show notes, but I'll link specifically the episode that I was on some shameless yeah. self-promotion for the both exactly. of us. Exactly. Yes. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so backing up to how I do typically start the conversation around wellness, and I leave that intentionally vague. So I'm curious what your idea of wellness is, what that means for you and looks like in your life right now. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, my business is Wellness with Jer, so I'm I'm in the business of wellness. Um, you know, I think my definition has changed over time. I think I used to kind of go off of like happy and healthy, and I think I've really shifted to healthy and sustainable. 
Um, I think kind of that acknowledgement that happiness is a temporary state uh, and it's okay to not be happy. Uh, so I, I think sustainable's come up because if we're healthy, and that's an objective term that that I define a certain way, but like uh, uh, if we're doing healthy things in a sustainable way, uh, routinely, we have good consistency, our happiness is likely to increase because we're creating space for that. And so I think wellness in terms of our, our body and our mind and our emotions, those things kind of working in congruence uh, when we do those things consistently, we feel better. And so I think I kind of have a, a holistic view of it. I draw from my various backgrounds. I've spent a lot of time in athletics and sports. So like physical health is um, important in that your body feels good, whatever that means to you. So not necessarily like an ableist perspective of like, you need to go run a marathon, but the perspective of whatever's going on in your body, are you aware of it? Are you being intentional with it? And uh, I think that makes a big difference for people. I'm, I'm 35 and I keep doing like mobility exercises lately for like my hips because it's like, mm. you know, I'm not ancient, but that's what I want to be healthy as I continue to age. I think that's an important part of aging for me and, and my level of physical activity of a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Like, mm. So I think just being intentional with it, the way that I used to be an athlete versus the way I interact with my body now at 35 as a parent is very different. So I think that that intentionality around uh, health and wellness is really important. And obviously I work as a, a therapist. So mental health is mental wellness is a big part of that too. And again, I, I use the word intentional a lot. I think just get into a space where we can be intentional. Are we slowing things down? Are we taking time to check in with ourselves? Do we kind of have a, an understanding of why things are doing what they're doing and how do we feel about our response to them? Um, and again, that's, I don't know. I'm aware that there's a place that not that's a place that not everybody can get to based on their life experience right now. So so I have a lot of grace for that. But I guess that's kind of why I'm in the space that I'm in as a therapist is to help more people get there. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of alluded to your not just your definition of wellness shifting, but your definition of health shifting over time. And I'm specifically curious about your time as an athlete. And I know that you were involved in college athletics, right? Like Mm -hmm. once you were out of college, is that right? You were doing counseling within athletics. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I've always done therapy. So I I studied therapy. I went to the University of Minnesota psych major and then Marquette University for counseling. So coming out of college and and I got my postgrad right away in marriage therapy specifically, but therapy has been the big thing. Sports has kind of been I don't know. It's not even secondary. It's gone along, but much more on life experience as opposed to like academia. So mm-hmm. I played college sports. I played volleyball. I grew up playing baseball, um, had an injury and kind of had to shift for something that was volleyball is not easier on the body than baseball, but it, yeah. it was good for my shoulder, which is where my injury was. Um, and coming out of college, then I kind of didn't have sports all of a sudden, which was really weird mm-hmm. for me. I was being an athlete growing up. So I got into coaching. Um, coached club for a long time and that kind of transitioned into a, a full-time position at a college where I was the director of student athlete mental wellness so I did uh, mental health stuff for the student athletes and I was coaching and I was teaching in the way that anyone who works for a division three college does way too much stuff mm. um, <laughs> so yeah so I have my experience as an athlete and I have an experience as a coach and then like 
I fold in the therapy stuff, obviously, but but it's kind of been a weird route to get to that place um, with all of those things. And you know, as a coach, it's funny we we would talk about coaching collegiately, generally of eighteen to twenty two year olds. We would refer to our, our seniors as our uh, our old ladies. Uh, I coached women's sports, uh, women's volleyball, and so like a twenty two year old who you think is in like their prime, mm-hmm. they're so slow to stretch and warm up and cool down. Like the way they approach the sport is so different than like an eighteen year old who's like, "Why are we stretching? I don't need to do that." So you know, mm-hmm. seeing it in that vacuum of just four years, but also experiencing it as you know, seventeen year old, eighteen year old Jeremy who never warmed up or cooled down and would eat McDonald's <laughs> after practice. And then, you know, 35-year-old Jeremy, who's like, oh, I got to do some mobility exercises so I can wrestle with my kids. Like, yeah, yeah, it's changed a lot. (laughs) Did you, when you were an athlete in college, did you also experience that uh, slowing down from freshman to senior year? Like you just described? Uh, no, I was not healthy in college, uh, <laughs> mentally or physically, I guess. Um, you know, I was, I was, well, I was in an unhealthy relationship in college that took up most of my time. I know most people think college should take up like school, but like that mm-hmm. took up the least amount of my time. I had so much free time on my hands in college. It was un, it wasn't good for me to have that little structure. Um, But sports was always kind of my saving grace for my ADHD. So I was always involved in sports. So playing volleyball was really good for me. But um, volleyball 15 years ago at a D1 school was not a big deal. Um, So there was no money there. There weren't scholarships or anything yet. Um, So we were a good program, but we practiced at like 930 to 1130 or something like that. I don't remember Um, in the evening, you know, after all the other sports were out of the gym. Um, Mm. so I would, I would stay up late. I went past, I literally, this is not an exaggeration. I walked past a McDonald's on campus to get back to my uh, apartment when I played volleyball. So I would three days a week when we had practice, I would practice 1130, then get McDonald's and eat it on the way home three nights. Mm. Like that's so bad. I'm so embarrassed saying that. Um, Mm. but you know, when you're young, I was 19, 20, like I was six, 390 pounds eating whatever I want, working out all the time and like not putting on any weight. So like, I just never thought about it. You know, it was, I wasn't spending time with my body outside of using it for competition. So I think it was one of those things where I just didn't understand or kind of recognize, um, the experience. And then Mm. I would say being neurodivergent, I've learned a lot since that time about my relationship with my body there are things I just don't pick up on um we think in terms of like sensory issues it's like oh I don't like things on my skin which I definitely have that with my ADHD but I also have things um where like I don't realize that I'm full I I don't know what that feels Mm -hmm. like my body doesn't um pick up the interoception is the the fancy psychology Mm -hmm. word for it where our body's picking up internal signals from our body to our brain so like I just eat till my stomach hurts. Like I thought that was normal. I thought that's what being Mm. full was for everyone. So even though I know the psychology and I work with neurodivergence and all this stuff, it probably wasn't until I got kind of serious about my own physical health around 30, I would say five, five ish years ago, maybe um, where I started to recognize like, Oh yeah, some of this stuff is also my neurodivergence. It's not just Mm -hmm. like, you're a big person. So everything's different for you. Like a 2000 calorie diet makes no sense for someone my size. So like I had to do all this like unlearning and relearning 
And that really kind of shifted the way that I relate to my own body. But yes, no, it, it wasn't healthy in college. It never got healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say it was, yeah. I would say it was life experience. Coaching is a different perspective too. Like I would say it slows things down. So the things of, this happens in therapy too. Uh, telling so many of the kids I worked with or so many of my clients things and being like, hey, Jerry, you should you should probably do that too. <laughs> yes. uh, you're not immune to that stuff, like stress and knee pain and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know, age, mm-hmm. maturity, lived experience, yeah. some combination of all those things. But like, yeah. yeah, in my in my 30s, it was after our second kid, I had I put on some baby weight with baby number two. Uh, my wife gets irritated when I say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> But I was, I was around, uh, I was a little overweight. I was still in, in the college setting. So, um, in season, very active and out of season, very stationary, which isn't a good setting for me being stationary. Um, so I was a little overweight, um, like two thirty, which is about 30 pounds overweight for not, I don't know, not that the number is important, but I could feel it. And that was, what was different for me. I was having back pain. I was having knee pain. And as somebody who's an athlete, like I was in a weird way in tune with my body and then in a weird way, totally out of, out of touch mm. with my body. So, um, yeah, like the knee and back pain was like, wait, I'm 30. I don't think I should have this stuff yet. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of when I started revamping stuff. I got into intermittent fasting. I wear barefoot shoes. Like I did a bunch of hippie stuff. Oh yeah. Works well in- <laughs> for me. I don't say it works well for everyone, but it was, right. you know, it was, uh, reevaluating that relationship I had with my body for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm um, happy to find another barefoot shoe lover. It's it's a part of myself I don't share often because of the like judgment that can come along with it. But yeah, if I could be totally barefoot all the time, I I would. Yeah. I don't like feet. So that stresses me out. Even playing like beach (laughs) volleyball. I'm like, oh, I should like cut my toenails, I guess, because people will see my feet. Um, But yes, I (laughs) I get a lot of comments. I talk about it often because of the shoes, the dress shoes mm-hmm. for barefoot dress shoes. They're very limited options. So they're yes. kind of, um, I don't know, wild and out there for men's shoes, I yeah. guess. So I get a lot of comments. So I talk about it often. Yeah. Can you briefly, I mean, this is not a podcast about barefoot shoes, but I'm glad you're bringing <laughs> it up because that is actually a, an important part of like my personal wellness. So can you, for people who might not be familiar, like what is your idea of what a barefoot shoe is? Just Because so pe- I think people think like, oh, it's the one where you have the toes. And that can yeah. be, but it's not exclusively that shoe. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's it, um, for me, uh, what got me into it at first was the wide toe box. So uh, mm-hmm. a lot of shoes get very narrow at the front. And I have wide feet to begin with. So even trying to find shoes that would fit. Um, I'm six foot three, so I'm a big dude and I'm usually struggling to find shoes that fit in the first place. And then I have wide feet. So I was always always looking for like wide sizes, which is a pain at my size. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, like good, not good thing. I can't imagine playing in like the NBA and needing to find shoes and like they get shoe sponsorships because how do you find a size 19 shoe? I have no idea. Um, (laughs) but so wide toe box um, and zero drop. So uh, most shoes have like a thick padding at the back. So the heel is higher than than um, the front part of your foot. So you're actually walking on a little bit of an incline. It provides cushion, but it's not really the natural way that our feet are designed to walk. So um, barefoot shoes don't have that. They have zero drop. Most of them have zero drop. The ones that I wear have zero drop, which I like. And most of them have very little padding. We're in a podcast. Otherwise, I'd take my shoe off right now and show how bendy it is. But there's, <laughs> yeah. there's very little yep. form to them. So, like, there is a sole to provide, you know, 
protection from puncture wounds, I guess, but like, otherwise there's not really any support. Um, and I've had to like adjust a little bit to find, as I live in the city. So a lot of my walking is on bike trails or on city streets. And so I've had to like back off a little bit, um, and find some barefoot shoes that have a little extra cushion, not still zero drop, but I need a little cushion because I'm on concrete so much. And just like going from that hippie of like, I'm going to do the things my body wants to do to like, oh, well, your body's not designed to interact with concrete. So you do have Mm -hmm. to adjust. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But the wide toe box, the zero drop and and the very loose form. So for me too, again, kind of reevaluate my relationship with my neurodivergence, proprioception. We have at least eight senses. So you think of like the five major physical senses, but we have interoception, which I talked about already, just nerding out here on neurodivergence. I love it. Uh, Love it. (laughs) uh, Proprioception is like your body in space and how your body's interacting in your space. Um, And so barefoot shoes help with proprioception. Again, I was an athlete at a pretty high level. So it's not like I'm uncoordinated, but there are weird quirky things that my brain processes poorly. Um, and so kind of like, uh, starting to ground myself through my feet. Um, I carry a ton of weight on my feet. I don't do great with posture. I'm a big dude uh, from a small family. So both my parents are five, seven. Um, I have a sibling who's five, four, like I'm oddly large and like, it's, it's in my family. It's just not in my immediate family. So I, I'm a big dude, uh, who's a group around small people. So everyone, I don't want to say they treated me like a freak because they didn't ever make me feel bad about it, but they were just kind of like we'll just let you eat whatever. Cause it's weird how much food you can eat. And like, mm. so there was a lot of things that my family just didn't know what to do with. So then I didn't learn good, healthy habits. Um, but I also have a tendency to make myself smaller or take up less space than I would naturally. Cause I'm a big guy. Um, yeah. so yeah, I don't know. All that relates to barefoot shoes somehow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. so it's more comfortable for me. It helps with proprioception. It, it, I don't want to say overnight because I had to do some work to kind of relearn how to walk as weird as that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it helped clear up a lot of my, it was a combination because I lost about 30 pounds with intermittent fasting um, pretty quick. And then I've maintained since then. So losing the weight and switching to barefoot shoes cleaned up most of my back and knee pain pretty quickly mm-hmm. within a couple months. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. I've, I don't have, back or knee pain. Thankfully, I wasn't an intense athlete. Um, sure. But yes, I've seen the like anecdotal um, evidence of that. And it's pretty incredible that when we allow our bodies to function how they naturally want to, that like we can feel better in our bodies. Yeah. Interesting how our bodies actually know what to do. <laughs> well, and it's it's fun because um, so I worked at, at a college, um, the largest D3 institution uh, sports program. So about 33 sports, which for reference mm. is the size of Ohio State, but for a D3 school, there's no money versus Ohio yeah. State, which is raking in millions, yeah. if not billions of dollars. Um, so I'm friends with a lot of the athletic trainers still to this day um, from when I was working in higher ed. And they like, I don't say they hate my barefoot shoes, but they dislike them. They're skeptical of them. And yeah. yet they're very in tune with like all these like biomechanics and ways to move your body in a healthy mm-hmm. way. So we have a lot of fun kind of like um, joking back and forth on different things around how our bodies are supposed to work. And they're like, yeah, but like a basketball player needs more cushion. And I'm like, I get that. And I'm curious mm-hmm. what the future of barefoot shoes will have. I know there's some court shoes. I don't play in them. I still tend to pull out my volleyball shoes and play in those. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. it's fascinating stuff. I have, mm-hmm. can I do a plug? We're not sponsored or anything. Oh, go um, for it. Yeah. 
but I have I have some Vivo barefoot shoes, um, which you like mm-hmm. can send them in and they recycle them. So I really like that. Mm. I like the sustainability aspect of it. Um, and then I have some zero. It's spelled with an X, though. Zero uh, shoes. Yeah. Those are the, the shoes I like the most that I found for walking on concrete are actually the, the zero brand. Those are really nice. But my Vivo are my my dress shoes and they're nice. not like stereotypical dress shoes, but I really like mm-hmm. them and they're they're quite comfy. So oh, yeah. shout out to the barefoot shoe companies. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I know we want to get into maybe Halloween a little bit too, but I was, I had a um, Halloween party this past weekend and, um, I think, you know, women are obviously, uh, primed to wear high heels a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's just never, I also have wide feet. It just never felt good. And I put on some heels to go with my Halloween costume and I was like, I'm not going to enjoy myself. So I put yeah. on my barefoot, like I like black boots. And I was nice. like, you know what? I would rather be comfortable than look the way that everyone thinks I need to look. Yeah. Uh, right. So one of yeah. my uh, one of my supervisors back in the day did therapy wearing her her slippers. And this mm-hmm. has always stuck with me since I was in grad school. She was like, if I'm not comfortable, how am I going to make my clients feel comfortable? So I do better yes. therapy by being comfortable. So like that's always yeah. stuck with me as like. Right. Like you as a therapist are a person too, and you get to be comfortable so that you can help other people. Like I'm not a suit and tie kind of person. Um, I wear Hawaiian shirts most of the summer because I have hyperhidrosis, which is overactive sweat glands. So I'm always warm, even though I live in Wisconsin and it can be very cold here sometimes. So like, yeah, I have a weird, it's nice as a therapist, you have a weird dress code anyway. Yeah. The, the lady therapists get to do their sweaters, but like as a dude, I can pull off a Hawaiian shirt in therapy and it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I've definitely embraced the like um, jeans and a sweatshirt because yeah. what does it really matter what you're yeah. wearing? That's not really what and it's about. Working in athletics, I got to do like joggers or warm ups all the time because I just see the athletes all the time and, and they all knew me as a coach as well. So I just, yeah, I got to wear athletic gear all the time, which was probably my favorite version of therapy like sitting on a wrestling mat doing therapy with the kid and like Mm. you know a wide open space like that it's pretty cool yeah that is cool to like reimagine what therapy needs to look like that it doesn't have to be sitting across from each other very like stoically right exactly Mm. I want to um back up a little bit and and sort of talk a little bit about diet culture if you're if you're willing to go there if that sure. makes sense for you because I know there's I've heard a lot of like really awareness of your body your weight like all the I've heard all these like diet culture things like calories and um and I, I guess I'm curious what your relationship has been like as an athlete and then coming into more like yeah. adulthood with that yeah um so again, like a total lack of awareness growing up, um, I was tall and skinny and ate unhealthily because it didn't, mm-hmm. apparently, it didn't seem to matter in the short term. Right. I didn't have any negative interactions up front. Um, so when I when I was done growing, not like when I was done with my height growing, because yeah. you, you broaden and thicken out a little bit, um, but I was 6'3", is, is how tall I am. So I was probably sophomore, late sophomore year, junior year, so a little bit of a not like a late bloomer. I just never had a huge growth spurt. I just didn't stop growing. I kind of just mm-hmm. kept getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, my family was like fascinated by this. So they just kind of let me eat. And I don't yeah. know what being full feels like. So I would just eat until my stomach hurt. Um, mm-hmm. But I was 6'3", 160, which like isn't an attractive thing for anyone who's like, 
I don't know. It's not about physical appearance, but like my sisters would call me Beanstalk was my nickname at that point. Cause like, you're just, you're incredibly tall and thin if you're six foot three and 160 pounds. Um, So I put on, I bulked up a little bit, but again, eating absolute garbage. I mean, I went through like a Rocky workout phase with one of my friends when we were idiot high schoolers where we were like doing raw eggs before our workouts. It's like, it's awful. Don't do that. Um, (laughs) But you know, just like I put on maybe like 10 pounds a year, but it was never you know, a bunch of growth. I kind of would grow and plateau, grow and plateau. Um, so I never really counted calories. I didn't keep track of any of that stuff. I just was like, I felt fine and I was athletic. So just was whatever. I have no idea how many calories I was burning on a regular basis. Cause I do think as ADHD, like I was always bouncing around and moving. So like that, right. that low key calorie burn during classes all the time too. Mm. Um, and I think from just a genetic standpoint, I have a fast metabolism. So it's just kind of like one of those things I never, ever paid attention to. And like, I'm aware that that's a very privileged stance mm-hmm. to be taking that I didn't worry about it. Um, but again, like, I think it wasn't until late twenties, even into like my, my year 30 where I never felt bad. Um, that's not true. I didn't feel physically bad. I often woke up feeling sick. So I thought there was something like I cut milk out. I thought maybe I was lactose intolerant. Like I did some different mm-hmm. stuff over the years, but like, um, yeah, it was, it was always just kind of off of a body awareness, uh, which again, I had a huge blind spot and mm-hmm. I was pretty in tune with my body. So it's a weird, like paradoxical kind of thing. Um, yeah. using my body as a tool in sports, um, even as a coach, like just go, like I would hit, you know, I would take, 1500 1700 swings a week which like is an insane amount to put on your shoulder but as a coach you're running drills you're on a box you're just serving whatever so like um from that perspective I always was like well my body's fine and it's in tune or like it's well tuned because I can do all this stuff and feel okay um Mm. but yeah I, I wasn't treating my like uh my gut biome well I wasn't taking good food in so that started to catch up as my metabolism slows down and I think um, not even metabolism just my lifestyle change I was much more sedentary Um, especially having kids like yes there's an age where you move around a lot with them but when they're very young you don't you nap Mm -hmm. with them you sleep in a rocking chair it's delightful Um, so I I think it was kind of when I had that knee pain and that back pain Um, my style I don't recommend intermittent fasting the way that I do it. I had a a nutritionist on and he was like shocked at how I do it. So I don't (laughs) think it's healthy for most people. And I know it's hard for a lot of people because a lot of people who have heard the success of like, I lost 30 pounds in probably two months, which again, like caveat that that's not always healthy to do it that way. Um, But uh, so they hear that and they want like they want that. But I don't eat on Mondays or Thursdays. So I have Mm -hmm. two days a week where I just don't eat. It ends up being a 36 hour fast twice a week, which is a lot. Um, But for my ADHD brain, I try to do like intermittent fasting. A lot of people do 16, eight where you have a 16 hour fast and an eight hour eating window. Like I fudged the numbers be like, oh, there's a Bucks game or there's a Packer game or we're going out late or whatever. I want to have nachos or I want to have a drink or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'd always like move my fasting and eating window and it just wasn't working. So I needed something that was very like black and white, which can be problematic for neurodivergence, but it was really helpful for me to have like, I just don't eat those days. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, like I don't have a target weight in mind. I kind of know what range I'm in when I feel pretty good. 
is more important to me, like a, that, that feeling, how my body is responding to things is more important to me than a number on the scale. I have a number for reference, but it's not like a goal or anything. So um, I was sick. Uh, we had RSV run through our house recently, mm-hmm. and then I kind of had a head cold for a while. So like I didn't fast then, like trying to get my body resources and do those things. So it's yeah. kind of like a, a health and wellness when I have the resources for it kind of thing. Um, I think mm-hmm. I'm insulin resistant, and so fasting kind of helps reset my my insulin okay. intake. Um, I don't wake up feeling sick every morning, which is nice um, when I'm fasting. So I think that has cleaned mm-hmm. up some of the bad habits that I had. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm aware that, like, it can turn a little eating disordery for people. So, again, I, I kind of put it out there as, like, this is what I found to work for me. I think it's more about my neurodivergence than about something that everyone can apply for their own health and well-being um and I don't know I'm certainly not the spokesperson for working with eating disorders it's not um something that I super advertise because I know my personal experience is not very relatable for a lot of people's experiences yeah well and I really appreciate that distinction that like this is what works for me it's what feels good in my body it's not necessarily about achieving this um like arbitrary number or physical look but it's it's like this is what works for me you do what works for you um yeah and working with athletes i mean especially coaching volleyball you're you're in a skin tight uniform uh, a lot of um I, again coach women's volleyball so a lot of the young ladies are tall and skinny and not traditional uh, i'll put that in quotes it's a podcast you can't see sure. that but traditional body types yeah. or what yeah. like is put out in pop culture for um beauty or yeah. attraction or whatever those weird social constructs are. Um, yes. So there's a lot of like self um, awareness around it, especially in games, because mm-hmm. here are all your classmates, here are all the people from the school coming to see you in spandex and a tight shirt. And yeah. um, so definitely aware of like a lot of the diet culture and a lot of the stuff that's unhealthy, um, especially in sports, like working with wrestlers yeah. too. There's a lot of unhealthy diet culture and people just don't think about it because you see these these dudes who are muscly and they look very fit and so you assume that's healthy and it's like yeah but they're bulimic so that's not good um so yeah definitely certain sports have have some unique risk factors around eating stuff so um yeah I, i support like the health at any size and i support sort of moving away from a number on a scale and and getting to that that point it's hard for a lot of athletes because they're used to like a results driven thing of number of reps or points on a scoreboard or stat sheet or whatever so that number on the scale can be kind of addictive for them but um really moving away from like what's your body telling you like how are you feeling you're lightheaded during practice that's probably a bad sign like or Mm -hmm. you know those types of things so kind of using your body as a, a marker for health and wellness instead of these kind of external or arbitrary things. Most athletes at least have moved away from like the BMI and that's pretty well accepted to be garbage, Mm. at least in the athletic world. So that's good. Good. Yes, that is (laughs) garbage in my world too. So I, I, it is progress. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's such an interesting um, dynamic. You know, I say this not as an athlete, but this like, real admiration for the human body that athleticism Mm -hmm. provides and this sort of like pushing your body past what's actually um, sustainable to go back to one of your original words. I feel like that's what I understand about a lot of athletics is like, yeah, we shouldn't necessarily be at our 
prime at 22. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting. I think, um, social media obviously is harmful in a lot of ways, especially around mm-hmm. diet culture, but some of the pro athletes who are getting later in their careers, being open about the changes they've made, or, you know, um, there's an offensive lineman who retired from the NFL, big dude, you know, these are some of the most athletic people in the world. They're six foot eight, 320 pounds or whatever. Um, but how much weight he cut after being in the NFL, just being like, if you're not competing at that high of a level, like there's no reason to have that much weight on your body to have those muscles for nothing, mm-hmm. like for show, mm-hmm. like that's not good for mm-hmm. you in the long run. So I, I do mm-hmm. think some of the sustainability is starting to come out, which is uh, good. And, you know, how many athletes do yoga regularly now and spend more time warming up and cooling down and some of that stuff is starting to starting to permeate some of the wider culture, which I think is really great. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, this is not at all what I thought we were going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. That's so funny. It's so interesting where it goes. Are you okay with continuing on this? Yeah, for sure. No, I'm, I'm happy. And, you know, and for me, the neurodivergence thing is, is near and dear. So that's too, because like some of that stuff is yes. just like, in theory, I love the idea of intuitive eating as somebody who has sensory issues that absolutely would never work for me. So I think like, um, you know, even in some of the like healthy movements and some of the things that like the principles behind it, in theory, I support intuitive eating. And because I'm neurodivergent, I know a lot of neurodivergent folks who would struggle with something like that because their body's not picking up on all the messages. So it's like, yeah, even in some of the stuff that's good, you still have to find something that's going to work well for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to talk more about the neurodivergence um, piece because I... So my, and I know we talked about this on your podcast, that my background is in yoga and Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about interoception from a trauma perspective and how the experience of trauma can disconnect you from being able to access interoception and that that can be rebuilt. However, I don't have the experience of being neurodivergent in this way. So I'm curious your thoughts as both a therapist and someone who is neurodivergent on like, can interoception be built? Can you learn a very simplistic term? Can you learn how to feel when you're hungry and when you're full at a most (laughs) kind of basic example? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I guess I would say like, um, I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can learn to experience some of those things if you're not, but like the barefoot shoe example, you know, I, I think spending I don't know being intentional around something like proprioception with the barefoot shoes and some other things that I do to train my body in a different way like I think you can grow in that way even if it's not necessarily picking up on that sensory input so even like Mm. uh, with some of the like internal stuff like you might not feel full but you have a better idea like I have a better idea of what like a healthy plate looks like and so mm-hmm. my my body and brain maybe aren't communicating the way that somebody who's not neurodivergent in the way that I am um, might notice but I'm I'm able to still grow in that area if that makes sense yeah. so I think growth yeah. is definitely possible I, you know we're not fixing or curing neurodivergence and that that would be yes. an inappropriate way to talk about it but I think it's um, can you make progress in those things? Can you learn to adapt yeah. or manage them better? I would say absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm mindful of um, coming at this from someone who doesn't have the lived experience of being neurodivergent. Um, and the um, 
I guess the bias I, I kind of brought to the question, which was that like you should develop this skill. So I backtrack on myself and like, well, maybe that's just like a, a, a neurotypical expectation that's not fair to like place on everyone. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a weird experience because again, like I've done this work for a long time and worked with neurodivergent folks for a long time. I, I usually say neurodivergent brains kind of find their way to each other. Um, mm. So... You know, but it it was a I don't know. I'd been in my career for nine, ten years by the time I was like reevaluating some of the stuff for myself. So um, I think it's good to have these conversations because you know, not knowing what full feels like was a thing that I didn't really notice till I was like thirty when I was like, wait, you guys don't just eat till you're in pain. Like, what does full feel yeah. for you? And like they're explaining it, and I'm like no idea what you're talking about <laughs> um so again i think sometimes like what's normal for you because we don't talk about some of this stuff or it's not um part of like i don't know i don't like the phrase cultural zeitgeist but like it's not a common topic people who aren't picking up on it or who have a different experience or are neurodivergent and therefore have different experiences don't always know that their experience isn't typical so yeah i don't know i i wasn't offended by your question i don't think it's a bad question but i think it's it's yeah, like we're we're learning some of this, you know, as somebody who experiences it firsthand, but also in the field, like the way we study this stuff and approach this stuff is is slowly changing and adapting, mm-hmm. which it, it needs to. So that's good that there's right. there's growth there too. Yeah. And and totally tell me if this next question is sort of out of your scope. Um, but I as a trauma therapist think a lot about um the overlap in presentation between trauma and neurodivergence such as interoception or lack thereof um and i know you know we don't have a ton of time to like fully unpack this but if you have any thoughts about how from the neurodivergent perspective how how to sense the difference between trauma and neurodivergence yeah (laughs) too big of a question (laughs) (laughs) that is a that is a Sticky question. Well, no, I mean, I think um, I have a a framework in mind, I guess, on how I kind of work through it, you know, um, working with religious trauma, um, Mm -hmm. looking for where the trauma not necessarily started, but like when do we kind of see it impacting someone's life, whereas neurodivergence, we can sort of safely assume it's been there the whole time. So I think if there's a time or a space before, and like, you know, I was raised in in evangelical fundamentalism, so like there wasn't a time before that for me. But, you know, I think in terms for my experience anyway of little t trauma, not big t trauma. And so um, I can say like some of these things were neurodivergent before they would have been affected mm. by religious trauma, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking too of how much um, I, I had someone on a while ago and we talked about what it means to be a highly sensitive person and mm-hmm. how that maybe is like on the neurodiversity spectrum somewhere um, and how, and I would identify in that form and how that may make you actually more susceptible to experiencing adverse events as traumatic and I you know I'm wondering too just like we can't talk about neurodivergence without talking about um like power and oppression I don't think um and how being you know quote different in a in a world in which you're expected to be one way you know keeping it into the like the religious perspective like how much that may actually being neurodivergent may impact 
your experience within those systems as well. Yeah, for sure. Because I am the the poster child for white evangelicalism of like, <laughs> you know, I'm male, I'm white, yeah. uh, raised evangelical. So like that was set up for me and it also never, ever fit. And so like, yeah, yes. definitely being neurodivergent and being like, why doesn't any of this fit for me? Why am I so mad yeah. all the time? Why am I like middle finger to the law when the law is in this setting designed for me, someone who looks like me? So yeah, definitely like there was always that, um, I don't know, I was always bumping up against a structure that didn't fit for my brain. And that's some of society yeah. at large, but Amer American right. society is definitely impacted by uh, white Christianity. So yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. And we could talk for a whole nother episode around <laughs> that. So I encourage people to check out your podcast because you do talk about this with different yes. guests on your on your show. I schedule an hour because I know I can ramble. So <laughs> yes, no, I know I, I keep it a little bit shorter for my own. Like, honestly, I think about listening to a podcast on my commute and I'm like, I don't want to have extra, <laughs> but like, it's totally yeah arbitrary that's what you get um, to do when that's why you set up your own podcast so you exactly. can do the podcast you want to listen to exactly and so in an effort to like bring us back I know we opened the trauma can I'm just going to gently close it and say there's so much more um <laughs> grace gracefully close it yes <laughs> but I would love to close with just as someone who is neurodivergent what is wellness looking like for you these days <laughs> nowadays yeah that's a good question i mean i think a lot more um time and space for my my physical well-being i think growing up uh i wasn't diagnosed till later in life um 22 but like you know at that point mm -hmm. i had my post-grad so like i had done a lot of things in those 22 years yeah. um where a diagnosis would have been helpful earlier um sure so a lot more because sports was my my regulating factor growing up. So I was just always doing thinking. I was doing things. I was exhausted by the end of the day. Lots of practices, lots of movement. Um, so as an adult, needing to be a little bit more intentional to create that space to take care of my body. I'm much more in tune with my um, nutritional intake than I ever have been before. Um, you know, as a therapist, there's a lot of there's always been a lot of self care. I've always been. Um, I'm using always a lot. I, from early in my career, was aware how much I needed to take care of my mental well-being in order to help other people. So that was, that's been pretty good. You know, deconverting from a high control religion has also created a lot of space for me. Mm. So, you know, we were just talking about Halloween. So like the spooky season, I identify as atheopagan. Um, so like uh, the wheel of the year and connecting to the earth and the seasons and those things have been really good for me and really healthy mm. in a, a sort of a genuine and validating way as opposed to like a high control pressure religion yeah. um, it's been very uh, freeing to be able to explore some of that and do some of those things and mm. listen to death metal and be okay with satanic overtones and not worry about it yeah. and you know celebrate halloween guilt-free like so yeah there's yeah. there's a lot of kind of convergence points at this point in my life that i feel much more congruent and more like my authentic self um, and a lot of that has to do with just making space for that um, from a judgment-free zone and then prioritizing those things. I, I said earlier, the word intentional pops up a lot in the work that I do. And that's that's been my own work, too, of being intentional with, I know these things are helpful. How do I create space for them in my own life? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I think that's just a really great place for us to land. Um, it seems <laughs> that's like... a good wrap up. This is that therapy? Oh man, we got three minutes left. How do I tie all this together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We definitely, there's a lot of avenues. I mean, I could talk for hours to people. It's one of the reasons I do this because I just love to yeah. talk to people. Um, yeah. But if people do want to learn more about you, um, you know, I'll link everything in the show notes, but just so people can hear it, where can people find you? Yes. So Wellness with Jer is kind of my, uh, that's my business name, the LLC. So that's my website, wellnesswithjer.com. I'm at Wellness with Jer on Instagram, at Wellness with Jer on YouTube. My YouTube is like uh, where I maybe have a little bit more fun. I do song reviews and stuff, uh, mm. talk about mental health, all the breakup songs and the terrible couple advice that, that is in there. So that's where I have a, a little more fun. And Instagram is trying to put out some good information and, and have some fun too. And then I have a podcast called Your Therapist Needs Therapy. Which we should we yes. should link to where I talk about uh, yeah. I talk with other therapists about their mental health journeys as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. all that stuff's on my website. I kind of just promote my website, and there's there's links yeah. and helpful things there. Awesome, yeah, and I will link all of that in the show notes for easy access. Um, but thank you so much for being here for you know turning the tables, and I got to learn a lot about you, which was super fun for me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jeremy. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.